If you have your Bible, go ahead and, and pick it up and open it to uh, the book of 2 Corinthians. If you don't have a Bible, uh, maybe you forgot yours or it's somewhere in the school and you just don't know where it is <laughs> uh, and your phone is not working for some reason, you can just raise your hand and someone will bring you a Bible to use. So I um, want to make sure you get a Bible this morning if you don't have one. And go ahead and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 2. Second Corinthians chapter 2. We are not, haven't been in 2 Corinthians. We haven't been in either one of the Corinthians lately. We've been in Luke a lot. We've been in Psalms a lot. And we've had a couple of different like topical things we've talked about here and there over the last few months. But we have not been in the Corinthians. Uh, so I do realize that we are um, kind of jumping into a whole new context and a whole new thing going on. So I want to very quickly bring us up to speed. And I do mean quickly. Uh, as to what is going on in 2 Corinthians so that we don't just jump in the deep end and have no idea uh, which way it is to shore. So 2 Corinthians, what's happening here that is pertinent to our text today? Why is Paul writing 2 Corinthians? What's happening? Well, three things, and you could really maybe even just say two because they're pretty closely related. Three things are going on here in in Corinth. And if you didn't know, Paul is the church planter of Corinth. He planted this church. He got it going. He spent a year and a half there training leaders, putting a lot of work into it. It wasn't an easy church plant. If you read 1 Corinthians, it's very much PG-13 in terms of some of the deals, uh, some of the things and issues they were were dealing with, a lot of division, a lot of uh, just crazy stuff going on, people getting drunk on the Lord's Supper, uh, some pretty pastoral moments there uh, that, that Paul has labored hard in Corinth up to this point. And so in 2 Corinthians, a lot of that relationship has been established. A lot of the groundwork has been done. But something has happened. There's a rift in the relationship. There's a rift in this relationship. We get it from, from, from uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Somewhere during Paul's second visit to Corinth, there was a wrong that was done to him. Somebody in the congregation attacked him, attacked something about him. We don't know exactly what the nature of it was, but we know that it was hurtful. We know it was painful. We know that when Paul left, it wasn't resolved. And we don't get any sign at all that his church, the people that he loved so much and cared about, we don't get any sign that anybody stood up for him, at least not publicly. If they did, it was privately. There was no public support for Paul. So Paul very much left after his second trip to Corinth completely humiliated. Which in that culture was a pretty big deal. The issue was not dealt with yet, so when he left, he had plans to, uh, to come back and visit them. He had travel plans that they knew of, and the plan was to come back at a certain time, and Paul actually decided not to come back, which which further, um, I think, brought some further tension in that relationship because Paul said he's coming, he's not coming, what's going on here? And Paul decides, I'm not going to come back, I'm going to write you a letter instead. And he writes a letter to the Corinthians, and we think very much, it just seems like in the context that he's writing it about the, the conflict that he's had with these people, with, with this person, and then whatever camp kind of, kind of has been rising up against Paul. So he writes a letter. 
And the reason he writes letters is because he doesn't want to come, he doesn't see the Corinthians very often. He doesn't want to come back and have to deal with some significant conflict. He'd rather deal with it in a letter. Let's get, let's get to the bottom of this now. And he describes the letter in chapter 2 as being very painful. It's a tearful letter. It's a severe letter. It was not an easy letter for the Corinthians to receive. It probably included some kind of rebuke, some kind of instruction, some kind of get back in line. Some authority was probably exercised here. And Paul writes this letter in tears with a heavy heart, and he hands it off to Titus, and he says, Titus, bring this to them. I'm not going to go visit them. I want you to bring this to them instead. And they, and they, and they receive the letter, but, Titus, or, but, uh, but Paul has not yet heard back from Titus as to how they received the letter. So, so there it goes. And I don't think Paul is taking the easy—I really don't think Paul is taking the easy way out by writing a letter. It's not like— it's not like he's breaking up with them through a text message or something like that. He just doesn't want to do it face-to-face, so I'm going to cop out and, and, and go the easy, easy road. It's, uh, it, he put a lot of heart and effort and work into this letter, and he's nervous. How did they receive it? Evidently, it was at least strong enough to where the, the relationship between him and the Corinthians was, well, it could either make or break the relationship. So Paul's writing 2 Corinthians partly to explain some of his reasons for writing a letter instead of coming to see them. So you got that going on. <clears throat> One more reason that Paul is writing 2 Corinthians that matters to us this morning for our, our text is that sometime after he left in shame, some opponents have arrived in Corinth. Later on he calls them um, false, false apostles or, or super apostles, kind of sarcastically. They're great apostles. They're false, false apostles. And what's going on is they're preaching a different gospel. They're bringing Moses back into the picture, basically saying that Jesus, whatever, whatever Jesus did was not sufficient. We still need to hang on to some of this Moses stuff. And in the process, they are attacking Paul and his apostleship and his ministry which claims nothing other than Christ. And what they're attacking in Paul is Paul himself. Look at the man. He's weak. He suffers. He's abused. He gets thrown in prison. There's nothing really that, that great about the guy, honestly. And Paul, and, and Paul even quotes them. He, he, he quotes these attackers, these super apostles, in chapter 10. He says, quoting them, a line that has evidently gotten back to Paul. His letters are weighty and strong, but his bodily appearance is weak and his speech of no account. This is what's circulating among the church. This is the kind of things, accusations that these super apostles are bringing. And these guys, by the way, are polished speakers. They're professional speakers. They have letters of recommendation. Their resume looks awesome. They're getting paid for their service. Everything about them says, listen to us. Paul might have gotten something started here in Corinth, but it's time to move on. And they would say, and it's time to follow us. Leave Paul. Leave what he stands for and follow us. So this is going on. All this stuff is going on here in the background of 2 Corinthians. And the big question that needs to be resolved here in this book is just simply, is Paul truly an apostle of Jesus Christ? Is he really an apostle? And Paul does defend himself by pointing to his ministry. He just looks at his ministry and says, this is my defense. 
So I think what we have here in our text today, the question that we're going to come to the text with, I should say, is what does true gospel ministry look like? How does Paul explain his ministry? Because if we can look at him and see how he explains his ministry, we can say, well, this is something about what true gospel ministry might look like. So that's the question we're going to come to um, with our text. And before we actually read it, I just want to say a word of prayer and uh, ask God to help us in this process. Heavenly Father, uh, your word is um, life-giving. It's powerful. We need to hear it. We need to receive it. We ask that you would help us to do that this morning. We pray. Um, I, I just pray, God, that whatever I say this morning, Lord, that you would affect in our hearts in a positive way. May you have your way with us. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14. We're going to read 14 to 17. It says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God... We speak in Christ. What does true gospel ministry look like? Gospel ministry looks weak because it is a calling to suffer. Gospel ministry looks weak because it is a a calling to suffer. Look again at chapter 2. Verse 14. Actually, go just a little bit above 14. Let's go up to to verse 12. It says, When I came to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ, even though a door was opened for me in the Lord, my spirit was not at rest because I did not find my brother Titus. He's waiting to hear from Titus. How did they receive the letter? Right? My spirit was not at rest because Titus wasn't there. So he couldn't tell me how you took the letter. So I took leave of them in Troas and went on to Macedonia looking for Titus. So you have, you have Paul, comes into a new ministry field. God opens up a door for him, for gospel work to be done, but he, he leaves it. He walks away from it. I mean, this is kind of his out. He, can, he, can, he could move on if he wanted to. The Corinthians have kind of, they're hurting him. It's a, it's a painful relationship, and he could easily say, man, God's giving me a new open door. I'm going this way now. I'll just meet up with Titus whenever we, we happen to run into each other again. And he doesn't do that. He's, he's burdened. He's suffering internally so much so that he's just going to leave all that. He's got to go find Titus. How did the Corinthians respond to my letter? Later on in the book, Titus describes his internal suffering, the anxiety that he feels for all of his churches, as the greatest suffering he endures as an apostle. And this is after a long list of all the beatings and the stonings and the the whippings and the uh, imprisonment and the the cold nights, the sleepless nights, the danger that he lives in. At the end of this whole list of suffering, he 
The worst of it is that I suffer daily the anxiety of my churches. It's an internal suffering that he's talking about right here in verse 13. And so he jumps, but thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. The ESV does a really good job on the uh, translation here. It's helpful. The NIV does a good, there's a lot of translations that get this right. Because it's, it would make us say, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. It would at least make us say, what's well, a triumphal procession? If we're going to read slow enough, we'd be, I don't know what that thing is. And the King James, there's a few other translations that don't quite word it the same way. They might say, uh, I think King James says, causeth us to triumph in Christ. Another one says, who always leads us in triumph in Christ. And that paints a picture or gives you the idea that we are, just, we are just triumphant in Christ. We're just God, we are triumphant in Christ in all things. Whereas the ESV here is helpful in that it says, God leads us in triumphal procession, and it makes us ask the question, what in the world is a triumphal procession? Paul, in this case, is employing a cultural metaphor that the Corinthians would have understood right when they heard it, immediately. It's found in one other place in Colossians 2.15. It's the only other place in the New Testament that this triumphal procession is mentioned. But we know a lot about it because uh, historically it's very well documented. And uh, Josephus and other historians have talked about what a, what a triumphal procession is. And what it is, it's a Roman military victory parade. So the Roman army would be out conquering their enemies, expanding the empire. And they'd come home victorious. And when they'd come home, they'd bring all the spoils, of the, or maybe some of the spoils of the land with them, gold, silver, livestock, all kinds of things. And they'd come home, and, we would, and they would celebrate. And part of, the, uh, part of what they would bring home with them would be some of the conquered, some of the biggest and strongest and most high-ranking enemy soldiers with them to parade them to, to, to the citizens of Rome because the greater your enemy looks, well, the greater your, your army looks. Look who we conquered. And so they'd bring all, these, all this back with them. And then the actual procession itself would be just a big celebration. It'd be something like, like the 4th of July, except I think way cooler in my reading of it. Um, but it's like this, this, this train of, of, thing, of, of people and, and objects and, and all kinds of stuff that would kind of go through the city. There'd be gold and, and uh, you know, fine purple linen, um, just gems all over, just, just the best of what Rome had to offer, offer the people. And they, they would march through, and, the military, and their army would march through, and the emperor might march through, and the generals would march through the city, and there would be incense burning, and it would just kind of like, it would just spread through the city so that even if you didn't make it to the procession to watch it, you would smell it and you would just know that it's going on a huge party, a huge festival. And if you were there and you were watching closely, you would eventually see those conquered, those conquered, defeated soldiers marching in a line, unadorned, nothing special about them. And they would eventually be led to a certain place and in most cases, uh, executed publicly for everyone to, to see. It's a celebration of Rome's strength and, and their might. And when the execution would happen, the people would erupt, they would cheer, 
and, and sacrifice to their gods. More incense would be burned. There would be a feast. There would be, there would be food. All this stuff. So, so Paul is saying, here's a good metaphor for my ministry. Thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. But there are a few details to work out in the metaphor. Paul clearly says, thanks be to God who in Christ leads us. So God is leading this procession. But where does Paul fit? One option is that Paul is one of the victorious generals who marches along with God. And, and behind him or in front of him, I'm not sure where they were, would have been the conquered enemy somewhere in the mix. And, and, but Paul is a victorious general enjoying the celebration, the feasting, and testifying of the victories that he's had on the battlefield for the Lord. It sounds like a nice option, but I really don't think Paul's talking about that. There's no support for it anywhere. He never talks about himself that way. He never talks about his ministry that way. The cross doesn't even stand for anything like that. It doesn't look like a, like, a, like a conquering general in any way. The better option, the right option, I'm 100% certain of this, is that Paul sees himself in this metaphor as the one who's been defeated. And God is leading him. And he, like Christ, is, be, is unified or united to Christ in the sense that he is being led through the city like Christ was led through the city, carrying his cross, ashamed, to his death. And Paul, I think, is identifying himself as that. So, let's read it. Let's think of it this way. This is sort of my, my take on it. Maybe Paul is saying something like this. Thanks be to God, who in Christ leads me like a defeated enemy into the gospel ministry of suffering and weakness, and he uses my suffering to spread the truth of who God is to the whole world. But catch this. This is exactly what the opponents are saying. This is why you can't think about Paul as an apostle. This is why you just can't really, you can't take him that seriously anymore. He has, look at, look at his ministry. Look at the way he suffers. Nobody listens to this guy. And Paul turns that around and says, no, that legitimizes my ministry. That legitimizes my apostleship. I look like Christ. John 15 says, Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul doesn't try to like defend his, his ministry in ways that maybe we would think, he, think that he would. He says, no, man, that's it. I am weak. I do suffer. This is what God has led me to. So, a nagging question I had this week as I read this, this text over and over and over. Why does he say, thanks be to God? You know, at this point, is he being, uh, you know, he's, he's been writing the first chapter and a half of Second Corinthians, and maybe he's just like, this is kind of a drag of a letter. I'm just going to throw a thanks be to God in here. You know, let's just throw a little thanks be to God and lighten this thing up a little bit. I'm going to throw a, a pastoral phrase out there just so that just so they know I'm still thankful. I don't think so. I mean, that doesn't make any sense. I think the thanks be to God is is really placed exactly where it should be. And I think Paul means it. 
Maybe he is, he is just so excited at this point because he's describing his suffering waiting to hear from Titus, right? He's, he's in the midst of de- describing his suffering and then he breaks out into a thanks be to God. Maybe he's getting at a deeper level that it really is God who leads him in his suffering. Maybe he has struggled with this. Like we would struggle with it, right? I'm suffering so much. Can this really be God that's leading me in this? Would God lead me to this? And I think Paul is, is in his heart holding on to the truth that absolutely it is God who leads me in this. And he's thankful to know that. He's, be, he's been reassured in some way that God leads him in this suffering. Think of it this way. You know like when a, a young couple gets married? Maybe, maybe it's the traditional. They're young, just out of college. Why are they always so happy? Well, they're just always so happy. Just blindly, just, they don't sit around frowning on their, on their wedding day. They're always happy. Why is that? Because you're looking at it and you're like, okay. They got nothing in their pockets. They got a mountain of debt to figure out. They might not have jobs figured out yet. They don't even know each other really that well. They come from families that, they, that are going to prove to be difficult down the road. And here they are just happy as if it's all fine and dandy and things are going to work out just, just fine. Well, I know, that, I know I can answer for myself the reason I was happy on my wedding day. There's really just two reasons I was happy on my wedding day. I loved my bride. I loved Ashley. And I knew it. I knew that this is who I want to marry. I love her. And I don't want to do life without her, right? So that'd be one reason. I'm just, I just love her. But you can love the wrong person, right? I mean, you can love someone that maybe you just need to not marry. So, but I, that was not the case for me. I loved and I trusted who she was. I trusted her character. I trusted God's work in her. I trusted that she cared that God is working in her. So she didn't need to be perfect. And thankfully, she had the same attitudes toward, attitude toward me. I didn't have to be perfect but there was a trust there in who she was. I trusted that if God blessed us with kids, that the Bible would be pretty important in our raising those kids. Um, there was just a lot of things I could say, I love her and I trust her. I want to marry her. Come what may in this life, I'm going to do it with her. And that's, I, that's why I was so happy. Doesn't matter what's going to happen in this life. I think Paul's looking at his situation saying, overwhelmingly dealing with pressure and suffering and all this stuff. And he says, but thanks be to God, he loves me and I trust who he is. I trust his character. He is for me. He won't give me more, he won't put me through more than I can endure. He won't abandon me at the end of the day. He is with me all the way. I think his thanksgiving to God is so genuine. I think he, he gets this at a deeper level that you can only get once you walk through the, the, that, the, go through the dark night or walk through the valley of the shadow of death and you come through that and you realize God is there. He is sufficient for me. Thanks be to God who always leads me in my suffering. He leads me in this ministry of suffering. He leads me in my weaknesses. I'm not just messing this whole thing up. He's leading me in it. Paul's thankful for this. So what might this mean for us? If this is a picture of gospel ministry, and we're all called to be a part of gospel ministry, 
We have personal ministry that we're, we're involved with uh, all the time. What does this mean for us? Maybe it means, just for starters, that we just keep on repenting of trying to be generals and kings and emperors who keep themselves sort of above all the fray and never, never suffer in any way. Never let our weaknesses ever be out there. Don't, don't be too vulnerable with anybody. Don't, don't minister from your heart too much. Keep that distance there. Because, I mean, generals and kings and emperors, they, they protect themselves, don't they? That's what they do. That's what we do naturally. I'm going to protect myself. I'm not going to get hurt in, these, in this life. I'm not going to get hurt in gospel ministry. And there's just an ongoing repentance. I don't think that's a one-time thing. I think we constantly repent of this all the time, that I'm trying to be something that God hasn't called me to be. I'm a, I'm a conquered enemy of Jesus. That's what, I, that's what I am. So there's repentance there. For sure. And on the flip side, I think maybe what we would do, maybe what, what we could do is embrace, embrace our calling to suffer. Embrace the weakness in our life. Knowing that this, God uses this somehow. He uses me in my weakness. Another way I could say it because Paul says it this way, maybe embrace our calling to be a suffering ambassador of Jesus. Uh, 2 Corinthians 5, Paul uses the word ambassador. And what's an ambassador? An ambassador is a representative, right? It doesn't represent himself or herself. An ambassador represents someone who, who sent them, a king. We need to, we, I think we need to embrace this call. It's not an occasional calling. It's not like we, 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 we take that hat off whenever we want to. It's not like Brett and Thomas right now are over in India being ambassadors, and when they get back, no longer does that apply anymore. They're just hanging out with us, right? <laughs> we are all ambassadors. You're an ambassador in your marriage to your spouse. You're an ambassador to your children. You represent Christ to your children. You're an ambassador to your neighbors, your co-workers, Every situation is not a hat we take off. It's the skin that we live in. It's, it's always there. We don't get the luxury of saying, well, now I am and now I'm not. And It's our whole lives. We are ambassadors of Jesus Christ. We're called to this. We're called to this out in the world, and we're called to this with one another. To, to keep speaking the truth about Jesus, who Jesus is, keep speaking the truth about the gospel to each other. Sometimes we'll want to hear it. Sometimes we won't. But I think in that, we would love each other well. We are faithfully loving each other well when we're trying to represent Christ to one another. And the payoff of this is, is amazing because on the one side, we're, we're, we are loving each other well. There's a sense of deep, significant community if we take seriously this call and get past sort of the suffering that comes in the process and just say, that's part of it. But I'm going to love my brothers and sisters well here in this church. And then there's another payoff. Jesus prays, and I think it's John 17, he talks, he, he prays for us, he prays for the church, and he says, I'm going to paraphrase it, but that they would be united in everything, that they would love each other, and the world will look at them, and they would know Christ. They would see Jesus. The outsiders would look, and they would say, wow, there's, there's something, there's real love going on here in this place. So we've got to embrace our call to be an ambassador, a suffering ambassador with each other, 
in the world, in every place in our lives. And you know, Paul, the thrust of the passage really is that Paul is talking about suffering. I think it's worth noting that there is joy in that too. There is joy in seeing lives changed. There's there's joy in seeing marriages restored that look like they were not going to make it. There's, There's joy in seeing people who were once really hardened in their sin become just completely transformed by the grace of Jesus. So I don't want to like forget about that, but I think Paul is not necessarily highlighting that, but I, I think we can remember that too. The calling to be an ambassador is it's full of joy. So that's one description of how gospel ministry might look. It looks weak because it's a calling to suffer. Number two, gospel ministry divides people. What I mean is gospel ministry divides the whole world into two different camps. Genuine gospel ministry does this. So we need to be ready for positive and negative responses from people. Some people will love it. Some people won't like it. Some people out in the world will love it. Some people won't. Some people here in this church will love to hear it. Some people won't. That's just part of gospel ministry. Not everybody's going to hear it and say, I want that. I want, I want Jesus. It's just not going to happen. Just know that. Jim Elliott once prayed a, a now relatively, relatively famous prayer. He says it this way. He says, Father, make me a crisis man. Bring those I contact to decision. Let me not be a milepost on a single road, but make me a fork that men must turn one way or another when facing me. What we see here, maybe we should just look back at the passage. How does ministry divide people? Where is that here in the passage? Look at verse 14 again. Maybe the end of verse 14. Jesus, or Paul, is is writing about this metaphor. He says, And through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, the fragrance from death that leads to death. The other, fragrance from life to life. The fragrance here is the knowledge of God through the proclamation of the gospel. Paul's just saying, I'm proclaiming Christ. He's leading me in this ministry. I'm proclaiming him. It's like the fragrance of the triumphal procession. People smell it, and some people love it, and some people don't like it. Some people think that smells fantastic. Some people think that smells awful. I'm not a vegetarian. I don't know if anybody is here, so I'm speaking not from experience. But I imagine if you are a real vegetarian and you have been doing that for a long time, it wasn't just a, I want to look like a hipster kind of thing and I'm going I'm to give up meat because that's pretty cool. Um, but I imagine if you're a real vegetarian and it's been a long time since you've had meat and you really just don't even care to have meat anymore. You like how you feel. You like what you eat better. I imagine if you woke up in the morning to the powerful smell of bacon that you would possibly be repulsed by the smell. You wake up and you'd be like, I am leaving for the next four hours. Open the windows. I'll be back later. Maybe. Clear out this smell of bacon. This smells absolutely awful. 
to the rest of the world, <laughs> the, the majority world, we should say, you know, you wake up on the rare occasion and you smell bacon right away, like you're breaking into doxology, you know, like immediately thanking God that we are now under the new covenant where we can eat bacon. And it's going to be hot and ready in about three minutes. Same thing, same smell, completely different results. And that's how it is with the gospel. It goes out like a fragrance. It's the same gospel. We faithfully proclaim it. We suffer in that process. And some people, we get to celebrate with them because it is life and they love the smell of it. And other people's People, it's death. It just is. It just is death. And so we go out knowing that gospel ministry means some people are going to love this, some people are going to hate it. That's the gospel. That's what it does to people. In our culture, we try so hard to ignore this tension. And I think, you know, to be honest, I feel that tension too. I don't want to go there with people. I, I, I can struggle with this in prayer sometimes. Like, God, really? The only way? This is the only way people are saved? Yeah, this is the only way people are saved. Through Jesus Christ, death, burial, and resurrection. That is how forgiveness is accomplished. It's through Jesus. And it's super offensive to people when you say that. Super offensive in our culture to say that. And we try to get around this from time to time. We say things, we may, hopefully not we a whole lot, but I think in our culture, the general belief is, it's whatever religion you are, it's fine, whether it's gospel Jesus stuff or whether it's something else. The real important thing is that you're sincere in that, that you treat people really well. And honestly, we're probably all going to end up at the same place someday. Really, all religions, if you do it the right way, are gonna end, you're going to end up with God. Or with God in wherever that is. And that is... That's the unoffensive truth that our, our, our culture fights for. And says, fine, do your thing. I love what Robbie Zacharias said about this. And I just came across this this week. I, I, I put it on our, our church Facebook page. I don't know if you knew we had one, but I put it up on there. And, uh, you know, Robbie Zacharias is a well-respected scholar, author, writer, understands a whole lot more about global religions than I do. He says this. He's a Christian guy. He says, all religions are not the same. All religions do not point to God. All religions do not say that all religions are the same. At the heart of every religion is an uncompromising commitment to a particular way of defining who God is or not, and accordingly of defining life's purpose. And anyone who claims that all religions are the same betrays not only an ignorance of all religions, but also a caricatured view of even the best-known ones. All religion at its core is exclusive. And the gospel would fall into this too. It just has, it's just an exclusive thing. And so is every religion out there. In Matthew 7, Jesus says, verse 13, Enter by the narrow gate. For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. The scent divides. The gospel divides people. That's what it looks like. And the effect, continuing with the scent, has an increasing um, 
uh, it has movement, it has an increasing effect on those who smell it. Look at verse 15 again. For we are the aroma of Christ to God. And you could even circle that to God. You could say it's really, it's for God is the idea that it's carrying. We are aroma of Christ for God and his purposes among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one a fragrance that from death to death, the other a fragrance from life to life. Those who are repulsed by the gospel and the smell of it, that bacon will get more and more without God's intervening grace will just get more and more hardened to that gospel. They'll just keep on, I just, I hate it more now than I heard it the first time. I, and, I, and I like it less, and I like it less, and I like it less. It has a progressive influence on, on people. On, that's, that's the way it works. But it also has a progressive influence for those who, who, who smell it and it's life. And their hearts are, come alive. And they, and, they, and, they, and they just love it. And they love it more. And it becomes sweeter and sweeter. Even to the point where you look at your suffering and you say, thanks be to God because he leads me in this. The gospel can become so sweet that in every situation, somehow in your heart you say, thanks be to God. He's with me in this. Lastly, what does gospel ministry look like? Gospel ministry is impossible. It's impossible without the Holy Spirit. It's totally impossible. Read verse, uh, I think, verse 17 here. No, actually the end of 16. Sometimes verse numbers aren't in the right spot. I don't know if you noticed that, but... um, Because Paul changes his tone at the bottom of verse 16. He says, Who is sufficient for these things? We are not like so many peddlers of God's word, but as men of sincerity, as commissioned by God, in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. Who is sufficient for these things? He just got done explaining the gospel is a life-wielding or a death-wielding force. It is powerful. Who is sufficient for this ministry? Who's sufficient to carry the gospel out into the world? What makes us sufficient? Is it a, is it a degree in theology? Or a, or a training session that you, that you took at some point? Or, no, of course not. There's... You know, once you start thinking about it, it's like if I'm called to be an ambassador of, 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 of Christ, carrying the gospel to even just my kids as a parent, that I already feel insufficient for that. I feel like, well, I can't do that. I, will, I, I can't do this. This is too big of a message. This is too powerful. Can I really be sufficient for this? And Paul would say, absolutely not. You can't be sufficient. You're not sufficient for this. In our natural sinful tendency— we will twist the gospel somehow in some way that, that works better for us. And we will, in, in, in the process of that, we'll kind of create God in our image. And it'll work in our favor somehow. That's exactly what's happening here uh, in, the, in the context. Because Paul alludes to these super apostles, these false apostles. He says, we're not like so many peddlers of God's word. In other words... Peddlers of God's word is just a, an expression talking about financial gain. Apparently these guys had come in and, and turned the gospel into a commodity. It, it was a, a business opportunity. It's a chance to make some money. 
and they don't even really preach the gospel. They're just making money off the whole thing. And really, in a way, we would maybe not make money, but in our natural selves, we would eventually turn the gospel into something that just works for us. It just makes, it works to my advantage. And who knows if it's really a gospel at the end of the day. That's where we would go. Were it not for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives. By the way, it should at least be mentioned that Paul is not, he's not arguing here with the whole pedal for profit thing um, that uh, ministers of the gospel shouldn't ever be paid for their service. I mean, in 1 Corinthians 9, he goes on and on. He goes to great lengths, basically, and, and says, absolutely, you pay, you, you pay them what they're, what they're worth. He says, I'm not getting paid. I'm going to make tents. I'm going to make tents. I'm going to pay my own way here in Corinth. I'm going to associate with a lowly class of people. I'm not going to look the way you want me to look. But I have, no idea, I have no problem with being, you know, with people getting paid. And he's totally fine with that. You can read about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. It's not an issue. The issue is motives. Why? Why would you be paid? What are you after here? And that's his issue with these super apostles. It's just peddling God's word for a profit making some money on the whole deal, preaching a false gospel, and stealing his church away in the process. And Paul is standing up against them and saying, no, that does not, that's not it at all. So, and he says, convert, you know, to contrast that, we preach the gospel with sincerity, as commissioned by God in the sight of God, we speak in Christ. But still, what does make him sufficient? Why is he sufficient for this? Let's read on. Chapter 3, verse 1. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some do, letters of recommendation to you or from you? In other words, do I have to update my resume? Do I got to get a recommendation letter again? Or maybe for the first time? Would that make me sufficient? Corinthians? Should I, should I do the things that these super apostles did? Should I take some classes on preaching? Is that somehow, does that somehow make things better between us? Does that somehow make me sufficient? No way. We don't need these letters of recommendation. Here's what we need. Jump down to verse 3. Chapter 3, verse 3. You show that you are a letter... From, uh, from Christ, delivered by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such is the confidence that we have through Christ toward you. Not that we are sufficient in ourselves. There's the word sufficient. That's what he's getting at. We're not sufficient in ourselves to claim anything as coming from us, but our sufficiency is from God, who has made us sufficient to be ministers of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills but the Spirit gives life. Our sufficiency comes from God by the power of the Spirit. That's how we are sufficient in this, in, in this gospel ministry, this personal ministry that we have. <clears throat> and I think this is just really difficult for us to, to, to get a hold of because we're so naturally bent towards looking at our own flesh, our own skills, our own abilities. That's where we go. How can I be better at what I need to do for God? 
And then we look at our insufficiency. We say, well, I can't, be a, I can't be a minister of the gospel. I can't effectively do this. I'm not good at this at all, which is still just a focus on the flesh. We, we just naturally start looking at the flesh right away. And Paul's like, that's, none, of that is what, that, none of that makes you sufficient or insufficient. That's, that's not the point. The Spirit makes us sufficient. God makes us, I should say, God makes us sufficient through the Holy Spirit. But in our flesh, when we go out in our flesh and we try to be an ambassador for Christ, whether it's with our children, our spouse, or whatever, and then we fail because we're trying in our flesh. And then we get frustrated or beat ourselves up because, man, I'm just not good at being a Christian. I'm not, I'm not good at, at this whole thing. And we stare at ourselves even more. Well, we have, now we have all kinds of repentance to do because, first of all, we, we start, we're, we're, trying to, we're trying to do things in our flesh and then when we don't, we don't succeed in that thing, we keep on, we, we go on in our flesh and just start beating ourselves up over the whole thing. Still not recognizing this whole thing, we're just digging ourselves deeper into a hole. How do you get out of the hole? How do we get out of that hole? If, you ever say, if you've ever said something that you shouldn't have said, maybe you ask someone if they're pregnant, and they're not, or anything else, and you realize, just as you say it, that I'm in a hole now. By the way, I don't ever ask anyone if they're pregnant unless they're doing the, like, the waddle and like the belly button is out. And Okay, I know you're pregnant. I'll, I'll, we'll talk about that now. But you get in a hole. How do you get out of that hole? Well, you try to explain yourself. That never goes well. Well, I did, you're not pregnant? Well, I, what I thought was, um, well, I can't say that. Um, and we just go further and further down. And it's very amusing to the person watching you because it's like, what are you going to do? When, at what point are you going to just say, I'm in a hole? And that's really the only way out. Once you get into a hole, you can talk and talk and talk, and hopefully they'll just get bored with you, and then you just never deal with it. But the real way out of a hole, when you say something you shouldn't have said— it's just to say, oh, sorry about that. <laughs> I'm in a hole. And then you're released from your hole, right? And then you can go out and you can have a conversation, a normal conversation again. <clears throat> it's just like a lie. We say, I lied. Okay, well, now we can talk freely again. When we're in the hole, when we realize I've gone out and I've tried to do, I've, I'm trying to do, I'm trying to serve Jesus in my own strength and I'm failing at it. The best thing to do right in that moment is to say, just to repent. God, I'm, I'm doing this in my own strength. I'm not going to stare at myself and my weakness and get down about myself. I'm not going to sit here and, and beat myself up over this thing. I'm just going to repent. I'm just going to say, Jesus, forgive me. Help me in this. Fill me with the Holy Spirit so that I really can be effective in this. And how might we be filled with the Holy Spirit? Piper wrote in one of his devotionals this week, something really helpful about this. John Piper, he, he cited Romans 15.4 as a way in which we fill our, we'd be filled with the Holy Spirit. Romans 15.4 says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Let me read that part again. Through... Through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. 
It's through the word that we find hope. When we fail, we don't have to get discouraged. We go to the word and we find hope there. We open it up. We see God's promises for us and we say, well, I have hope. I mean, I'm not going to stay this way because God has promised these things. It's not by my strength. It's by his spirit. And as we do this, we are filled with the spirit in fresh ways. And we go out and we do gospel ministry effectively, more effectively than if we tried to run out in our own strength and do it. One of these promises that we might look to in Scripture, I just want to read it in closing here. It's in chapter 12, verse 9. Paul says this, But he said to me, talking about Jesus, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. My grace is sufficient, and my power is made perfect in weakness. That's a, that's a promise, that's a truth you can hold on to in your failure. You can say, God's power is going to be perfected in my weakness. I don't have to hide it. I don't have to be ashamed of it. It's, God will use this. You don't need to be perfect. You don't need to be strong. Weakness is fine with God. In fact, he prefers a weakness because he glorifies himself in that. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you will be capable of going out into every sphere of life and effectively ministering in the gospel, ministering the gospel of Jesus Christ everywhere you go by his strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, uh, so many times I'm just reminded this week, I'm reminded even as I speak these words, Lord, that the natural tendency, my natural tendency, our natural tendency all the time is just to, to get better at everything we need to do, to never let our weakness be seen to operate from our strengths only, to view suffering and the bad things that happen to us as somehow not good and wonder if you're in it. Lord, this is a complete paradigm shift for us to say, oh man, God, God leads me in my weakness. God, God leads me into suffering. And that's how, that's how the gospel's proclaimed through me. So, we have a long ways to go, God. I know that I do with this, and, I, and, I, and we just pray that you would continue your good work in us. May this go deeper with us, Lord, and may you use us in this world with each other for your glory to proclaim this gospel everywhere we go and in every relationship that we have. And in Jesus' name we pray, amen.